This is Aliens and Artists, our conversation with Claire Castleberry. One. I'm your host, Stuart Davis. Claire is an author, artist, narrator, working in erotica and gothic nouveau. She's also an experiencer with a fascinating history. She's never shared her story publicly until now, as has become somewhat of a beautiful trend over the life of our series. We are honored and thrilled that she's chosen this show to come out of the anomalous closet, so to speak. Her experiences begin about age five and continue to the present day. We understand and appreciate what a momentous choice point that is for any experiencer. In this episode, we explore fear, creativity, grays, lots on mantis entity contact, implants, the color phalo green, the link between contact and psi capacities, and Mantis Summit, something I've been cooking up and considering hosting. So it's with love and enthusiasm we welcome Claire Castleberry here now. As far as speaking out about this, this was really difficult for me because this experience first happened when I was about five years old in 1986 right before I turned six years old. And I worried for the longest time, what are people going to think? Are they going to think I'm crazy? (laughs) I already kind of fit that mold of the crazy artist type. But I got to thinking about it. And a lot of my work touches on that aspect of fear. And I wonder if the reason we have these experiences in the first place is because when we worry too much about judgment, our creativity is affected and we kind of close ourselves off. And as I said, as someone who writes a lot about, I suppose would be called horror or paranormal, I've thought a lot about how fear plays into this whole thing. And I've grappled with using my real name to speak about these things, but it's important for me to do it because this experience, this first experience and everything else that happened after it's had such a huge impact on my creativity and my work as a writer. So (laughs) I don't really think I care anymore. If people think I'm crazy, they probably already do. And if experiences make someone crazy or if experiencers are crazy then I'm proud to be crazy. So what led up to this is that we moved up here to the northeast and I had this experience where I was standing in the kitchen and we have radiant heat in our kitchen and all throughout the upper floor and that experience of feeling the sensation of the heat coming up through my feet it suddenly reminded me of this first childhood experience that I had. So I shared it with my husband, who is kind of an analytical scientific type. And his reaction surprised me. He said, well, I believe you. And I believe that you believe that you experienced this. And it was a very tactile experience. So I think that you need to find a group of people who have experienced similar things and just see how you feel about it after you read their stories and interact with them and see if it's something that you want to share. So I credit my husband a lot for kind of encouraging me to go forward with it. 
Yes, affirmed fear can act as a suppressant to creativity. And also, reality has no regard for our categories. It doesn't care whether this looks crazy, feels crazy, whether or not the anomalous accords with consensus reality. Reality arrives and engages and leaves it to us to do the sorting after the fact. So I applaud your loyalty to that larger reality as opposed to the compressed, easy classifications of consensus reality. Well, thank you for having me on. You know, I've told you in that first email that um, your podcast was one of the reasons that I decided to go through with this and it really encouraged me. So thank you too. A pleasure. So is it 1986 where the thread begins? Yes, it is. You know, I was always kind of an imaginative child and I, I read a lot and I would I was pretty precocious. Um, but I grew up on a farm and we didn't have cable until well after this experience. So in my mind, I've kind of grappled with this a little bit. Where could I have sourced this information from? So I'll start with that. The setting is middle of nowhere, Louisiana, on a farm, 20 acres. It's a bit removed. And I don't know if it's important to mention, but I did experience a traumatic event about a year or two before this experience. So I felt like even as a child, I spent a lot of time trying to regain some sense of control over my life. But this event that happened, it provided some really bizarre sense of comfort, even though I overall, I was a pretty damaged soul by the time I was five. And sometimes I kind of wonder if my mind generated this as, you know, a creative thing as a way to comfort me, but why did it pick something so bizarre as a coping mechanism? You know, I was into things like unicorns, so why didn't I see a unicorn, <laughs> you know? And that's one of the things that makes me think that this really happened. And then everything else that happened after this particular experience was very tactile and, and real. And another thing is that every time I think about this experience and start to question this, I get a humming sensation in my ears that said, hey, I'm listening, this happened, I'm around, it's real, you're not crazy. It's very comforting, it's odd. So this was a little bit before my sixth birthday. I don't remember the time of year, but it must have been around January or February. I was trying to fall asleep. I saw a light and I have a faint memory of these gray beings. So my recollection is lights, gray beings, exam table, or it was something like a dentist chair. And there was some pain in my foot and then this abrupt transition to this room with this black glass floor that kind of looked like marble with gray tubing all around. It kind of resembled walls. And then all of a sudden this mantis is there. And I thought, whoa, what is this? I had never seen a mantis before this day. And I didn't know what to associate this with at the time i had never seen a manta so it was very bizarre looking and it was super green like phalo green you know if you're an artist you're familiar with this color and i thought whoa that is a green i don't see every day 
where have I seen this before? And then somehow I got a flash of these trees. My mother was an artist too. And she would often draw nature scenes and things like that. And I remember kind of standing with her and and seeing the colors that she used and seeing how she would incorporate phalo green into her trees. And somehow this flash in my mind drew some kind of association to trees. And then I was automatically comforted. And then all of a sudden this kind of telepathic communication with this mantis began. And he looked at me in this kind of curious, but it was non-threatening, not at all threatening. And he said something conveyed to me like, oh, hello, little girl. It was more expressed. And I thought about the room being just unnaturally cold and the floor was freezing and it was really uncomfortable. And then all of a sudden, this warmth radiated up through my feet. And that is what I was talking about in the beginning with this radiant heat in my current house. And the mantis conveyed something like, well, is that better? And then I was even more comforted. So I was in the room alone with this mantis and there were no instruments around and he was conveying all this information in kind of a calming manner. And then he asked, well, would you like to play a game? And I said, well, okay, you know, that's fine. (laughs) So he had me move these glowing shapes through other shapes, you know, and it was kind of in the order of size or pairing. And the shapes appeared in this holographic manner, suspended in air, not held up by anything. It was kind of like that game that you play as a toddler at the the doctor's office where you knock shapes through the, the appropriate holes you know, and he conveyed very good a couple of times. And then after we finished the game, he looked at me for a long time and I had this sudden flash of how dumb this game was. Why are we playing this? And in my mind, I drew it, the association to this toddler game that you play at the the doctor's office. And he seemed amused by that. I can't tell you how I knew that he was amused, but I just kind of knew. And he was looking at me in a a very curious way and he might made these jerky kind of clicking movements and i wasn't afraid and then he conveyed well you did that with your mind and then i expressed some kind of worry about the pain in my foot and he told me well don't worry it's just there for us to watch over you but it's not in a negative way but your foot may start to feel uncomfortable right before storms and he was definitely right about that and I, I don't know. I mean, I believe that I have an implant in my foot. Still to this day, I actually believe that I have implants in both feet because I feel it right before storms. And that, that's all I really remember. I was, I was kind of back in my room after this, this whole game playing experience. And I ran to the window you know, after I appeared back into my bed and I saw those same three lights moving away in the distance. The next morning I told my mom I had something stuck in my foot. So she put me up in the kitchen, turned on the light, poked around in there with a sewing needle, you know, as you did back in the 80s. <laughs> and she said, well, I can't get it out. What, what happened? And I said, well, you know, this green man put it in there. I think she thought nothing of it. And she said, well, it it healed. 
it didn't really hurt the next day, but I was aware of it being there and that, you know, they did it. And here's the really strange part. That day I climbed up in a tree and I actually saw a praying mantis. And I described it to my mom and she said, well, it was a praying mantis that you saw. We looked it up in the encyclopedia that night. That Monday at school, my friend who lived a mile or so down the road at the time mentioned unprompted that she saw those same lights, the three lights, and nothing else came of it. You know, I said, I saw the same thing. They flew in this direction. I don't know if she was abducted or not. I mean, we, we, we've never talked about it. I fell out of touch with her. And she mentioned that she did see the distinct outline of three triangles. I would love to ask her about it one day, but I've kind of fallen out of touch with her. But after this experience, it was kind of bizarre. I have these memories of having these chats with this one particular mantis being throughout my childhood, and there were these time jumps. I would end up in a different place later on and not really understanding how I got there. And I did this until I actually terrified people around me. My parents found me at the top of this one particular tree that I kind of favored. And I would be laughing hysterically, claiming that they helped me get up to the top of the tree. My father was so disturbed by this that he actually ended up cutting down that particular tree. But I used to think of this travel or whatever I did, I just thought it was just like outrageously hysterical until my dad cut down the tree and I could tell that people were disturbed by it. I would also disassociate a bit at school. And after speaking to a childhood friend recently, actually, right before, you know, we're recording this podcast, and he did remember it. And I don't know if that was related to the traumatic event that I experienced right before this mantis experience, or if I was chatting with this mantis as a coping mechanism. But the initial experience just seems so real. And I remember very distinctly the cold floor, the gradual warming, the comfort. And before a couple of years ago, I haven't really talked about this very much. I did have a secret part of myself that was always interested in this stuff, which is why I did spend a lot of time in the library. And I actually think that this influenced me into becoming a librarian professionally. And I've had a lot of really strange psychic experiences after this this particular event. And sometimes they were so jarring that they would disturb me a little bit, but they would disturb people around me even more. Later on, and this is the most bizarre thing out of everything, I think, is that I talked to my mom and dad about this. My mom was a little bit more open. She said that she saw a round craft. Recently, after the New York Times article dropped, I did talk to my dad about it a little bit. And he mentioned seeing triangles during a, a band practice. He used to be in a rock band when he was growing up in the, the 60s. And they appeared and my dad actually said that he was so freaked out that he called the police. <laughs> so that was, that was interesting. And I have heard that this can be a, a generational thing. But the most interesting experience that I had with family 
was chatting with my grandfather, who was a lieutenant, lieutenant in the Air Force. And he was staunchly, staunchly atheist because he had said that he had just seen so many things that it just swayed him in the direction of atheism. I did ask him about aliens one day and he looked at me and very, very gravely, he said, you do not want to know. That was kind of a shocking answer from him because he was very open about talking about any kind of intellectual topic we wanted to talk about. But his answer really jarred me. And if I have one regret in life, it would be that I didn't press him more about this particular topic. So that was the first particular experience. There were later experiences. Some I kind of pushed aside and some of them kind of picked up a little bit more during graduate school, but that's the first initial one. Going back to the first mantis entity encounter, that environment with freezing floors, which were warmed up to accommodate you, the game, which was administered as perhaps an overall assessment. That reminds me of our first guest on Aliens and Artists, Nadine Lalich, who was similarly tested by a mantis entity before an audience of various non-human beings. It was like a demonstration of her abilities. Essentially, this mantis advocating for the value of human potential, using her as an example of a highly evolved human being, as though the mantis were making a case to other non-human entities. I just wanted to note that in relation to the game you played. How do you reflect on that interactive component now with the benefit of time elapsing? Well, this is one of my million dollar questions. It's kind of, hell if I know. I mean, it, <laughs> it could have been to, I've, I've kind of thought about if it was to subdue me in some way, because I mean, if you think about it, that's basically why there are games like that in a doctor's office. So it, it could have been for that, just that reason, um, because this abduction, I guess if you want to call it an abduction experience, happened so early on, it could have been that they knew they were dealing with a child. So it was to subdue me and to take my mind away from the pain I was experiencing in my foot. But it also could have been a test or I could have been being made as an example. I certainly did have a lot of psychic experiences after this particular incident. And I do remember, I do recall playing this game quite a few more times. And it did kind of vary in complexity. I would say it happened about two or three more times from ages six to about nine or so. And then the experiences kind of leveled off as I got into my teenage years. What was the context for those two or three other times? So they're a little bit more difficult to remember. And I don't know why I'm able to remember the first contact experience more. But there were, there were two or three more where it was just kind of an abrupt transition from my bedroom being fully awake and then being in the same room with that mantis and playing this game. And that was pretty much really the only thing that, that happened. I mean, I hate to say it was kind of uneventful, <laughs> but it really was. It was the same exact mantis. 
a very, very similar game. The first game, I believe, was triangle, circle, square, and then the the shapes became more complex. And then we would go back to those three basic shapes, and then they would vary in complexity again. And I did have, I guess what it's it's hard to explain, but it, it would kind of be like a these time jumps where I would have conversations but not actually physically see the mantis or be in the room. And and that's what I'm referring to, like these time jumps where I would end up in the tree. But those were mostly comforting experiences. It's, it's okay. You are welcome to zone out and speak with me whenever you would you you wish and whenever you'd like to be comforted. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So other details. How tall was the mantid entity? Was it wearing anything? Any other notable attributes aside from the phalo green color? Okay. Um, so, so I would estimate around seven feet tall. It was large. So the interesting thing was I have heard a lot of people refer to these beings being in, in robes. It was not in a robe. I, I can tell you that much. And there did seem to be kind of a casual air about these particular experiences. Almost like, you know, when you visit a doctor and he takes off his blazer to appear more casual and comfortable. And another thing that I did notice was there were no, it did not have antenna like you would see on, you know, a praying mantis. Aside from that, the similarities were were startling. How close were you? Were you able to inspect the body in detail? You're highlighting characteristics that are common, such as the clicking sounds, the humming that bookends contact, the jerky discontinuity in the motion of the mantis body, things mantis entity experiencers report again and again. That that shocked me. So... I mean, think of how the sounds, if you just kind of tell the casual kind of (laughs) Joe Blow off the street about these experiences, I kept my mouth shut about this. And it wasn't really until recently when my husband encouraged me, you need to do a little bit more reading about mantis beings in particular. That shocked me. The similarities just absolutely blew me away. I mean, it took me two weeks to even process just the fact that so many people were having similar experiences. It would be fair to say that these are hallmarks. In my own encounter, that clicking and humming were braided into a telepathic download, somatic communication that was like being painlessly electrocuted. And... The sense of humor you're describing from the being, this emotive paradox. How is the humor conveyed, given manted facial features don't express like a human's do, and yet the sense of humor is so self-evident? That's an excellent question. So I actually recently finished this book that's really excellent, and I would recommend it to you and any of your listeners. It's called Alien Intelligence by Stuart Holroyd. 
And it's hard to explain how I knew that a sense of amusement was conveyed telepathically. I just kind of telepathically (laughs) knew that it was there. But if you think about it, you experience this with your pets, okay? So, for instance, you know, my cats, I believe, know when they're being humorous. And in particular, my cat Cleo will do things like flip over on her back and expose her belly and make a funny trilling sound to get my attention. And we forget things like this. We forget that that pets can do these things, but I do think that they understand what humor and amusement and cuteness actually is. So it's hard to convey, but if I had to attribute it to anything, it would be that particular analogy. I'm not necessarily saying that the mantis being see us as pets, but maybe they do. (laughs) (laughs) Some of us more than others. The other item I find electrifying is that when you climbed up the tree on the following day and discovered the mantis insect, the recognition that a praying mantis insect has a morphological continuity with the larger mantid entities, but with important distinctions. The larger ones don't have antenna, as you point out. So, yes, qualities of twinship, but you would never confuse one for the other. How do they share this taxonomical origin while also being so disparate? This is a great question, and it's something that I've thought a lot about. I remember listening to one of your podcast episodes, and someone said something to the effect of the mantis beings can see through the praying mantis's eyes here on Earth. And that really resonated with me. So we think of things like this as aliens from another planet, but perhaps dimension or realm might be closer, although it could, it could be both. If you think of them as this is an insect, and it might be trying to convey to you, respect us here on Earth, you could squash us, but in another reality, we could squash you. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's just kind of a representation of something relational for us on Earth. And that really hit home for me when I, I went back through and actually wrote this experience down as I remembered it word for word. And there's something about the relational images that they conveyed to me with the trees and the phalo green color as a way to comfort me. And I've heard this before, again, in one of your podcast episodes about owls being a relational image that we are comfortable with here on earth. It could be that they, whatever they are, are really anything, but that's the form that they choose to appear to us as. And this, here's another interesting thing that I learned about recently. I'm part Cherokee, so this really stood out to me, but the Cherokee maintained the praying mantis was a symbol of strength. So the insect's forelegs were interpreted to be like a representation of bows and arrows. These are weapons that they use for hunting animals, enemies, so on and so forth. 
So another thing that I also thought was really interesting is that they say that the praying mantis predicts rain because they typically appear after a rainfall. And oddly enough, those implants that I have are most active right before, during, and directly after a storm. So I guess my answer would be, I really don't know. This is all speculation, but I think that a lot of these images that appear to us are intended to be comforting. Yeah. The mantis has a sacred station in cultural, spiritual lineages around the world, totemic icons, cosmic intercessors. I've had experiences with the insect variety, which made it unmistakably clear they were temporarily commandeered as diminutive emissaries of the larger ones. The insects have been here 135 million years. I was told by the larger manta that they seeded the world with these insects as a gift and a mediating presence to facilitate all variety of relations and activity. We are the recent arrivals. The primeval aspect to them is arresting, right? So they also appear to be at the top of the holarchy. When you find any multiplicity of entities and a mantid is present, the other entities always seem deferential toward them. Factor in abduction and hybridization, and we have quite <laughs> a holarchical enigma. When you say you had memories of other chats with this mantis entity, do you recall what they covered, when they occurred? What more can be said of those? So this is an interesting question, too, and it's also something I've kind of grappled with a little bit. So what is the difference between being physically abducted, you know, and having a physical experience? And what, how does that differ from having, I guess, an out-of-body experience? So several of my friends and even family members have been witness to this where I, you know, effectively zoned out. Um, and there's one particular experience that scared the crap out of my mother <laughs> where I had kind of wandered down into Baton Rouge through this neighborhood and, and disappeared. And they found me later, but apparently I was having a chat with this mantis and they were in effect kind of mundane chats where I would ask for wisdom and advice and it would be bestowed upon me about how to navigate social situations or whether or not it would be a good idea to join the jump rope club with my, my girlfriends. But I don't really have a lot of clear memories about anything profound. My most profound experiences were with these holographic images and doing these psychic tests. And I would say that the things that kind of happened after these childhood events were kind of just an affirmation of having this weird psychic ability that I think has really helped me. And I think having the psychic ability has helped me in life. I, I, I kind of am hesitant to venture to even say this, but I think that having the psychic ability has helped me more in life than the experiences with the mantises, even though I feel like the, the mantis experience, you know, was a setup for everything that, that happened 
after. And I think it kind of enhanced these abilities that, that came up. Yeah. At one point I was interrogating the mantis saying, you know, why are you trifling with me? You can traverse dimensions, time. You're possessed of a wholly other order set of capacities. Why bother with me? And its response was to show me memories of myself holding these pet mantis insects we had and how we genuinely cared for them and how we sincerely mourned them when they died. And the larger mantis essentially conveyed the ratio between it and me was similar in some way to the ratio between me and the mantis insects. And yet the love for those mantis insects was real and important. And so the sentiment was one of, of course we care. Of course the connection is real and important. Depth and bonding are not governed by scale or evolutionary station. The way you felt about those mantid insects was not trifling, and your importance to me is not trifling. Yes. And I believe that, that that's kind of the message overall is that if you're open to things like this, it can really kind of expand your, your heart center. And I think that, you know, as a result of this early childhood traumatic experience, this is what the message was, you know, have room in your, your heart for love and creativity and self-expression, you know, which I think is one of the key reasons why we are here and these kind of psychic events or experiences that were, I guess, as a result of this, or, you know, maybe it's an inherent ability. I believe it's an inherent ability in, in all of us, but I believe that it, you know, happens to people who experience trauma in particular um, as I guess, a way to open ourselves back up to what is available in the universe. Yes, to the ongoing chicken and egg question around trauma. Does contact with non-humans traumatize people, magnetizing them for other human trauma? Or does human trauma put us on the radar of non-human entities? Both. Neither. Either. Does trauma open the aperture of the human being regarding non-humans. I personally haven't gotten the sense that my contact partners would ever have wished for me to be traumatized, but I have also felt a link between trauma, development, human-non-human connectivity, paradox, and nuance. Not one plus one equals two. Not let's have children get traumatized, (laughs) and then contact will be easier. But They also do not seem unrelated. So what are your thoughts on this concern? I I wish I, you know, this has, this is another topic that I kind of grapple with and and wonder about because I've also spoken to people who have had, you know, they say I have had a happy childhood, but there's also this theory that certain people are, they experience trauma due to the aspects of their personality that would lead certain events to unfold for them to be a healer because they have 
the firsthand experience of dealing with trauma. So when they begin to heal other people, they have a, a relational experience that will help them to better heal other people. And I've kind of wondered if, you know, and I'm not saying that anyone deserves trauma. I'm not saying that at all, but there could be kind of a cosmic reason behind it. I'm not sure. I wish I had kind of a more concrete answer to this question. <laughs> it's something that crosses my mind. Oh, probably once a day. <laughs> it would be wonderful if there was like a concrete answer. Before we move on to subsequent events in your history, I want to note the powerful intergenerational piece of your life. You, your mom, your father having called the police on a triangle craft, cut down the fucking tree in your yard to disrupt the non-human agents. Your grandfather's uncharacteristic admonition, you do not want to know about aliens. I find this three-generational packet to be so powerful. Uh, me too. <laughs> so, my mother, this was my mother's father, who I'm referring to, was the lieutenant in the, the Air Force. He was very open-minded to some degree about conversations, and... The reason I'm actually, he would probably be horrified by this, but one of the reasons I'm actually into astrology these days is because of him, because, you know, they use these stars to navigate. And, you know, I have these wonderful memories of going out on the patio with him and him showing the constellations and the planets. But um, he was very open-minded to questions except for this. And I got the distinct impression do not ask granddad about this ever again, or he is going to shut you down. <laughs> um, but I found it really fascinating that my mother also had, that was his daughter. She also had an experience as well. Um, she was driving down the road and it was kind of an open highway in Texas where you can see the horizon very clearly and she had an encounter with this very, very large, what I would deem as a mothership round craft. And it was at the end of the road and she actually got out of the vehicle just to make sure that it wasn't some kind of smudge on the windshield and got out and experienced this craft kind of hovering over the road for a good 10 minutes or so. And she was a lot more open about things like this. And I did tell her that I thought that the thing in my foot had come from something else, that it wasn't a splinter or a piece of glass. And she said, I believe you. My father, on the other hand, after some pressing, after the New York Times article came out, he did tell me about this experience. But, you know, he's a former pol police officer so he told me about this experience and I said, well, what did you do? And he said, well, we called the police and they thought that we were ridiculous. You know, these are 16 year olds in a rock band smoking pot, <laughs> taking a break from, from practice. So they weren't taken very seriously. So I think after that particular experience, he pivoted and said, well, I'm not going to deal with this psychologically. I'm just going to put it off. And that's about all he would tell me. 
I said, well, how did you feel after that experience? And he said, I don't want to talk about this anymore. <laughs> How's New Hampshire? <laughs> so that was about that <laughs> with him. Comedic how your grandfather's stentorian warning, you do not want to know. It's comedic how that becomes its own beacon later in life. Any observant, curious person makes a note when someone protests that emphatically. Why? Why would someone be so emphatic? Methinks the man protests too much. This goes for government institutions, systems, professional fields as well. Forbidding human curiosity compounds our interest in the forbidden mystery. I wonder if your grandfather's personality was sincere, and at the same time, the subtext from the subconscious was creating an alluring time capsule, a magnet, a beacon to be explored later on, and doing both things simultaneously in that one simple message, you do not want to know. So I've given this a lot of thought. <laughs> I, I'm sure you can imagine. That's not the, the standard response that you would expect from a higher up in the Air Force. What I believe he meant was that this subject is impenetrable. <laughs> you know, I, I think that the nuts and bolts crowd is going to be very disappointed for the next couple of years. Objective data, that can be produced by measurement and replication, but subjective data is not measurable. That's the problem with this phenomenon, is that by its very nature, it's so difficult to obtain objective data. It, a lot of this can't be studied in a lab. And it, they seem to be actually intentionally elusive. This has happened to me before where I thought, I need to get out a camera and film this. I forgot my phone inside. Isn't that convenient? <laughs> yeah. But our entire scientific materialist paradigm is built around these laws. And UAP, they don't seem to care about that. They, you know, a lot of our measurements that we use that's entirely meaningless. And this makes sense. If you think about science throughout the years, you know, I always use this analogy and I love this. Go back to the 1800s and explain Wi-Fi. You're probably going to be burned at the stake. <laughs> you know, and it's the same, same, same principle if you're talking about dreams. We know that people dream. A lot of us experience dreams, but we can't reach out and touch a dream. Um, a lot of these scientific discoveries began with anecdotal evidence. And I think that that's the thing that is missed by so many people is that we have to start with anecdotal reports. That is going to spur scientists to come up with a hypothesis. And then from there you get methodology and then you test and then you get objective data. But a lot of times these things start with anecdotal experiences. And that seems to frustrate a lot of the, the nuts and bolts crowds. And I, I get it. There's a, a big part of me, you know, that is 
very scientific, is very nuts and bolts, but yet I had these experiences that I can't explain with scientific data. So it gets it gets frustrating. But this is another thing that I've kind of found that experiencers <laughs> all have in common is that you have this ridiculous and humorous experience of trying to <laughs> wrap your brain around these experiences. And it, you know, the more you analyze it, the more ridiculous it gets. And the more you laugh, the more it just becomes funny. <laughs> but the thing about anecdotal evidence is that it becomes very powerful when there's a lot of it. And we're at a point in time where we have a lot of anecdotal evidence. And I think that was kind of the crux of what he was talking about. It just gets frustrating when you try to penetrate it. Yeah, yes. And looking further into your grandfather's statement, you do not want to know. Well, perhaps, but clearly they want you to know. They, the non-human intelligences, showed up with you face to face. In fact, they established a lifelong relationships and a relationship. And there are clear indications there is an intergenerational dynamic here. Prohibiting human beings from seeking this knowledge is irrelevant folly. The beings disperse it freely when they want, to whom they wish, however they prefer. Our categories are no obstacle. What's more, for any human being recognizing consciousness as fundamental, the subjective and intersubjective realms are not set at odds with the objective aspects of the phenomenon. All domains arise in concert, and reality is not composed of contradictions. Those contradictions fall away when we approach with consciousness as fundamental, not derivative. So mystical, occult, animistic, age-old interior paths are at home with this, in harmony with it. Test drive them. In my opinion, they produce the most reliable improvement in human-non-human relationships. Nuts and bolts? I mean, that's like trying to masturbate with a hammer. (laughs) Before we move on to your experiences in later life, I wonder if you might share what you have found to be helpful. How have your creative and spiritual practices informed or improved your mutuality with these enigmatic others? I am a seeker. I don't necessarily, you know, subscribe to any particular religion, but I like to kind of poke around, you know, I'm a librarian, I'm I'm a reader, so I'm kind of a, a scholar a bit of all these different religions and occult practices. But the thing that has really, really resonated with me, and this has just been within the past year or so, is the Robert Monroe meditation tapes. Um, And these are interesting, and I encourage any of your listeners to read about this individual because it's a fascinating, fascinating story attached to it. But these are guided meditations that were used for remote viewing. And when I began to practice them, it was not the first time that I had meditated. I've been meditating very religiously for the past 20 years. And I think the thing that stands out about the Robert Monroe tapes is that they're guided for a specific purpose. So I've had a lot of interesting out-of-body experiences with these. And the thing 
thing that really struck a chord was that when I meditated to these tapes, it seemed like these implants, as strange as that is to say, in my feet kind of vibrated. And I'm not really sure what the correlation is there, but I haven't quite figured out what is going on here, but there's a strong correlation. So I would say, you know, anyone who is a seeker, if you haven't started to meditate yet, I definitely recommend it. And I also think that creativity, I mean, it plays a huge part in my life. I think that when we get into the flow state, when we're creating, it doesn't matter if we're, we're writing or painting or decorating our house or anything that we use to invoke that sense of creativity. I think that it does bring us closer to them. I don't know if you want to call that God or mantis beings or to your own self, but there, there is some kind of correlation there and creativity. You know, I've had many experiences after that one experience and they've all, this has all affected me profoundly and it's had a monumental influence on my life. And I do think that there's some kind of intersection between creativity and other life. And by achieving that flow state, it's almost like a meditative state. I mean, it's it's close to any kind of occult practice, you know, any kind of occult practice uses ritual. And you could say that indulging in your creativity is kind of a ritual. I mean, it is a ritual. It is magic with the K. You are manifesting, for lack of a better word, something. And that brings us closer to God or them or whatever you want to call it. I think that, as you say, the creative lineage is a primordial one. Everything that you manifest through your creative endeavors is of interest to a non-human intelligence. It all goes back to something and nothing, that point of all places. And I believe that that's interesting to them. They probably create in some way, too. And anyone who deviates from that typical routine of get up, drink coffee, eat breakfast, (laughs) drive to work, you're stuck in that dull, round way of life, come home, watch TV, veg out on Netflix. (laughs) Anything that you do to deviate from that typical, dull, round way of life is interesting to them. So if you want to have experiences, create, meditate. And I I really do believe that the true aim of life is self-expression. And there is little that shapes the human experience as profoundly and pervasively as creativity. I think that drives everything. I mean, we think of procreation, and of course, you know, that counts. But creativity drives process in everything, every human endeavor, from the arts to the science to business, technology, redecorating your house, everything. So of course it's of interest to them. I'm high-fiving you in the etheric realm right now. It's the axle so much of this turns on our, our population, aliens and artists, not the podcast, but the sentient beings are aggregating and cohering with creativity as the locus of our mutuality. So take us forward to whatever is next as a milestone in your history as an experiencer? 
Oh boy. So, <laughs> so I had a lot of interesting experiences growing up as a child and my mother kind of secretly facilitated a little bit of this because I believe she was open-minded. She took me to the library, you know, which is considered considered like the devil's lair lately. But, you know, I was allowed to check out anything that I wanted. Nothing was banned. If I couldn't find it, she would take me to the, another library and we would find it. And I would hunt down books about the paranormal, UFOs, so on and so forth. Now, my father, on the other hand, I love my father, but, you know, this is just how he copes with things. He he kind of pushes it to the side. I don't really think that there's actually anything wrong with that. But right before my 11th birthday, my friend got me a, a Ouija board. I know, I know, this is, you know, kind of the the standard setting for a horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> my friend and I contacted something that said they were the twins. And they were supposed to be 11 years old at the time I was about eight. And after a few chats, we were left absolutely mortified after seeing what appeared to be feet under my bedroom door. So I told my mother about it and she kind of fell into a depression for a few days. And then she told me, well, the twin boys I would have miscarried would have been about 11 years old and they were about three years, you know, before you were born. That was the first kind of jarring psychic experience that happened after this mantis experience but there were a lot of other things like that growing up that were kind of minor playing field but my father was pretty put off by all of this and he actually had a priest come to the house kind of early into my teenage years so soon after that i kind of buried a lot of these experiences i graduated high school i went to college i tried to be normal <laughs> <laughs> we all we all know how that works out. My mother encouraged me to be a writer and artist and follow in her footsteps. She said, well, that's how you're going to be the most fulfilled. Whereas my dad wanted me to work for the government. Um, I was kind of prepping myself to graduate college, go into forensics, go into the military, so on and so forth. But around 2004 or so, I moved back into that childhood house to take care of my mother as she was dying. And this was during graduate school. I had kind of done what my father wanted me to do and decided to become a librarian. Secretly, I was writing stories and creating art that, that hid underneath my bed, but that's besides the point. I was up really late one night working on a project for graduate school and my jump drive as we used to use back in those days to store data, it quit working all of a sudden. So there was a 24 hour Walmart up the road. So I hopped in my car and started to drive. At the end of our driveway, which is again, even in 2004, a bit isolated, there was a large clearing and it was home to this neighborhood bar that my mother owned. It had been closed though since she fell ill. So there was nothing down there, but just the actual physical structure. I had the radio blaring and then it 
got weird. The haywire sensations kind of started. The radio seemed to kind of change channels, static station, static station. And at that same moment, I looked up and just above the tree line was a large orange craft. So this really stunned me. It was so close, I could actually see little glyphs etched into it. It wasn't a lantern of any kind. This was way too large. And when I really looked at it, there were windows. So I sat there and watched this thing. I don't know. It was probably 10 minutes. I was completely mesmerized by it, frozen. And then it shot straight up into the air. I had a cell phone with me, which was basically a flip phone. But when I looked at it, I realized that two hours had passed. And that was when all of these memories came back. I hadn't necessarily forgotten them, but I thought, oh, goodness gracious, that time jump that I just experienced, that's like what happened in my childhood. So after this particular experience, these psychic abilities that I had as a child, it just came roaring back. And again, these experiences were really jarring for a lot of the people around me too. There was one in particular that happened recently, and I'll share this. I had this dream that I was living with this dysfunctional family, and they were very verbally abusive. So I decided to leave in the middle of the night in the dream. And this house was in the middle of the desert. It seemed like Arizona or something like that. So I stopped for coffee the next morning, and then I kind of roamed through the desert, and there was what looked like a dollhouse on top of this hill. And when I got closer, I noticed the hill was kind of shimmering, and there were rings and jewelry everywhere, all kinds of different things, silver, gold, multicolored, different stones. And a woman emerged from this dollhouse. 50 years old, graying hair, and she was wearing this very particular dress with a brooch that I kind of took a picture of in the dream. And I thought, I'm going to remember what this brooch looked like. So I said, what is all this stuff? And she said, this is where all the lost things go. And then she went back into the dollhouse. So I thought this was really strange. I I was like, well, I'm going to write it down. I told my husband and I kind of brushed it off. And then right after that dream, my husband's mother gave me some jewelry. And one of the the rings is, you know, the wedding ring that I use today. I've been, had been wearing it constantly. I never took it off, but this particular day I took it off. I placed it on the dresser, dresser where I always put my jewelry And my husband and I went for a walk. I cleaned. I don't wear any of my jewelry when I exercise or clean. But the next morning I was hysterical because I couldn't find this damn ring. I put it in this place, in this little dish that I always keep my jewelry. So I looked all over the dresser, looked underneath it, looked inside it, (laughs) you know, looked under the rug, ran my hand over the rug. And I said, this damn ring is missing. Can you help me look for it? We looked for it. We took apart the vacuum, everything. Ran my hand along the same place I I had supposedly left it. My husband looked too. So the next day I was wearing his cousin Marjorie's ring. And 
she had died early and her mother gave it to me for some reason, but I wore it all the time. And I was wearing it when I started to look for this previous ring, my husband's grandmother's ring that had been gifted to me. Looked all over the dresser like I was being pulled there. You know, I took everything off the damn dresser (laughs) and then I gave up, I cooked dinner. I said, screw it, I'm gonna have a glass of wine. Had a glass of wine, went back into the bedroom, set the glass of wine on the dresser, started looking around again, thought, screw it. Picked up the glass of wine to take a drink. The damn ring is underneath the wine glass, perfectly positioned. (laughs) My husband was witness to this. And he even said that dream that you had was of my grandmother. She liked to fuck with people. This was a an, an anomalous experience that we shared that was a message to you. Don't take that damn ring off ever again. <laughs> it was bizarre. And I'm telling you, he is a very scientific, analytical person. And he said, okay, maybe some of the stuff is foreign to me, but I believe you now. That was a breaking point for me. Very interesting. Whoa. Pretty mind boggling. <laughs> Even sometimes we will talk about it and he'll say, I can't believe that that happened. That was unbelievable. I'm sure you didn't need more proof or confirmation that reality is much larger than we typically grant, but there is this human peccadillo where we want to confirm and then we want to reconfirm and then we want to re reconfirm. But culturally, we are not confronting a lack of evidence. What we're wrestling with is the incommensurate divide between our worldviews and reality as it presents itself. And proof does not reliably move worldviews. So how do we deepen our worldviews to meet reality where it lives instead of collapsing it to antiquated filters goodness what a loaded question so i think a lot of people even if something appears in their front yard and beings exit a craft and you know come out and try to shake our hands i think so many people even people that i know would say well it's a holographic image (laughs) i'm just going to dismiss this but there's something interesting about this phenomenon it will appear in a personal way to a lot of people who are questioning. And I think if you're open enough to it, and, you know, to my husband's credit, he is open-minded. But I think this particular experience happened with the ring to... In this experience, I was just kind of like a conduit. I was almost like a messenger, you know, conveying something from his grandmother to him, but it was a personal experience and it happened to him, but it kind of happened through me. And I think if it had happened to him, he would easily dismiss it and say something like, well, maybe I just forgot, but because we were both witness to it, it kind of provided that additional layer of evidence for him as well. You know, and it it wasn't just that incident in particular. I did have, you know, and this is a little bit um, 
depressing, but a few years ago, I was riding on a Mardi Gras float in, in Mardi Gras and having a great time. I was with a, a wonderful friend, you know, the spirits were high. And then I just got this sudden intense feeling of dread. And, you know, my friend picking up on this said, well, what's wrong with you? Why just this sudden change of mood? And I said, well, something's wrong. I'm going to, we're going to finish off the parade and everything, but something has happened. I don't know what it is. And I got home that night and I was just, you know, I hadn't really actually had much to drink, maybe like one or two drinks, but I was just like vomiting and crying. I was so upset. And I just, it just came to me all of a sudden something happened. And my husband was witness to this too. And, you know, I tried to go to sleep and he was like, well, I don't know what's wrong with you. And I said, I don't know either. But I got a text the next morning from my father saying that my cousin had committed suicide. And, you know, my husband was witness to that too. And I think it was just kind of another affirming thing for him as well. And I don't know if this, this really answers your question, but I think that depending on where you are in the openness scale, sometimes these affirmations will come in the form of someone being a conduit to it for you. And I think that these things happened and that he was witness to them as a way of saying, look, you know, you married this crazy lady. (laughs) This is what you're in for. So I think it really kind of depends on where you are on the scale of of being open to this this phenomenon. And if you're completely closed off to it, you're completely closed off to it. And it doesn't matter what happens. I think that if you're too nuts and bolts, like I said earlier, I think it's just going to frustrate you. I think that you know, if something very very tangible happens and if something lands in your yard, you're more likely if you're closed off to it to just brush it off and say, well, I hallucinated. There must've been something in the tap water. (laughs) I'm curious if you feel the liminal constellation of phenomena we're discussing, whether mediumship, life after death, dimensional intersection, non-human intelligences from physically far-flung places, the big umbrella, Do you feel that which populates the liminal is progressively moving closer to us and we to it so that the veil is thinning, the distance is shrinking? So, for instance, increasing shared territory between humans and mantis entities, to pluck one example. Or is it intractably liminal in a static sense? So that it always recedes in proportion to our approach, like an always evanescing event horizon. No matter how we approach it, it will always remain at arm's length or peripheral. Well, that's an interesting question because I think that 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 goes back to the humor of this whole thing. The more you try to reach out and penetrate it, the more it recedes, <laughs> which if you think about it, that's that's kind of funny. But I do think that with openness and especially, you know, I have to give credit to the New York Times for for um, releasing these 
articles and all this information that that's come about. And I've, I've definitely spent a lot of time thinking about realms, dimensions, and different things like that. It could be from another realm or from across the cosmos. And, you know, if they're able to project their consciousness here on Earth while their physical bodies stay in their place of origin, you know, this is something that I've been thinking about while doing these Robert Monroe meditations. What is it? Where does it come from? But does that really matter and should we strive to explore those realms? I mean, sure, you know, whatever it, it takes to expand our consciousness. And I think, you know, as long as we're striving to expand our consciousness, we're on the right track. You know, we didn't know germs existed until the microscope until that's a great analogy. We were exploring these unseen realms and and that opened up new vistas for us in science, you know, research, understanding. We started washing our hands. That turned out to be a great thing. <laughs> but I do think that some, if if not all of this, is intentionally impenetrable. It goes back to the amusing aspect of it. Going back to to time and space, there, there's information that seems to travel, downloads, if you will, like, you know, receiving that information from my cousin, it's quantum entanglement or whatever. We know that there's a way to transfer information across space time faster than the speed of light. You can't see Wi-Fi again, as I said, but you know, it's there. So why would it be a leap to postulate that there's another way of doing this? It goes back to, to open minds. And there are several ways to travel after all. I mean, you can go by car or plane or, or whatever. You still end up at the same destination. It's just enough different mode of travel. Yeah. On one hand, there do seem to be features and figures that recede in proportion to our efforts to reach them. But there is also the inverse, a removal of barriers. For instance, in the mantis entity saying to you, you can pick up the phone whenever you want. I've had similar messages that if you want to communicate, we can. Practices, protocols, the lines are open, folks. So it feels like a both and scenario in some respects. Some of my most ardent attempts, you know, meditating on the roof at 3 a.m. did not produce phenomena reliably. Nothing, at least on the order of what has occurred spontaneously, the life-changing stuff. So that bat signal is fallible, parts remain slippery, but other aspects seem responsive and progressive. How optimistic do you feel that when we take up practices and become seasoned experiencer practitioners, how optimistic do you feel regarding the sustainable advancement of human-non-human relationships? Hmm. Well, I would like to say I'm a complete optimist, but I'm also a realist. So, you know, there's this whole veil of, of secrecy and people say, why? Why is that? Well, of course, you know, the answer is weaponization. I think people can can handle this. You know, I don't think that any of this would be shocking to me at all. And I don't actually think that disclosure would be shocking to a lot of people. But the, the questions are not just going to cease, you know, 
the questions are going to be nonstop about this. Then it's going to open up all these questions about, oh, shit, we're not in control. Um, we need to know so that we can blow things up again. You know, they, they don't know what to say. I, I do think, though, that the increased frequency of this and the increased ability to communicate all the in-your-face news, I think that so I'm, I'm more optimistic. I think that there are more people meditating. There are more people open to experiences. There are more ways to communicate. And you can choose. You have the choice to close your eyes to this. Or you can choose to remain open and willing to learn more. And as someone with a professional background in being a librarian, we're seeing a lot of resistance to, to book banning. We're seeing a lot more openness to, to re what is in these banned books that they don't want us to know. <laughs> that is encouraging to me. And I, you know, I believe that we have physical materials, craft, and all that needs to be verified. It's, it's just a different world now, but we need to be, be open to it. And I have to give a lot of credit to the younger generation they're a generation of seekers and they're a generation of questioners. And I think that they are willing to, you know, give a big F you to people, you know, the man, I guess, or whatever you want to call it, who's trying to bring us down. I mean, you're seeing that a lot in culture right now, you know, especially in readership as people are banning books all over the place. People are saying, well, why, you know, what's in that? And, I think it's important to have some agency in your life. And, and this is the best time to do that, to seek your own knowledge and, and go your own way and find your own answers because the media isn't necessarily going to give that to you. So I, I would say I'm, I'm optimistic about that. I do want to circle back a bit. The Orange Craft, 2004, you could see glyphs and windows. You didn't use the words missing time, but you thought it was a 10-minute experience and two hours had passed. What are your recollections of the glyphs? Did you ever depict them? What might have transpired in those two hours? How important do you feel it was, for instance, that your mother was passing and she was in transition when this Orange Craft sighting occurred? So... This is a topic I would love more information about. I think that you could write an entire book just on glyphs and writing and things that people have seen and experienced on these these craft. That's a that's a huge topic of, of interest for me. I do remember particulars, and oddly enough, there was some kind of experience on Reddit, if I recall where someone drew the the glyphs that they saw and I was able to recognize one. So that really kind of, it blew me away. There was a bit of a ledge around the craft and it was tilted in a way, but there did look to be windows around the upper portion of the, the sphere. And I wish I could say that more happened, but it really seemed like a short amount of time that this object was hovering above the tree line. And it seems just bizarre that 
you know, it seemed like 10 minutes, but it was two hours that lapsed. You know, what was I doing? I must have been staring dumbly at this thing. <laughs> you know, I mean, that seems absolutely ridiculous. But when I look back on it, this was only a couple of months before Hurricane Katrina hit. And then Hurricane Katrina, I think, led to some events that contributed to my mother's passing. So when my mother actually passed, she was in the hospital. And I did get that same sinking sensation that I got, not to the d degree, you know, when my, my cousin passed, but almost to the, the same degree. I knew. And then 10 minutes later, my father called and said, well, you need to come up to the hospital. So that particular experience happened after a long hiatus, I would say, in non-experiences, just day-to-day, -day, going to college, binge drinking, phasing out, dating the wrong people, kind of caught up in this dull, round way of life. And I personally believe that that particular experience with the Orange Craft helped spur me and reconnect with this, I don't know what you would call it, the third eye, intuition. But I believe that intuition existed as a way to comfort me and prepare me for the inevitable. And I think that it did. It did help me. So I'm not exactly sure why it appeared, but maybe it appeared in the same way that the, the mantis being appeared as a way to comfort from trauma. Only this happened before. So maybe it was a way to prepare me for the, the trauma of losing my mother. I'm not sure. Talking with you and meeting with several other mantis entity experiencers in the past few weeks has reminded me that the mantis entity I've had contact with had suggested, <laughs> uh, let's say, that there be a mantis summit in which experiencers of contact with mantis persons gather together and off the record have a day or two in which to more deeply explore the human mantid dyad. And now I'm like, okay, Claire has got to come to Mantis Summit. Yeah, I would definitely travel a million miles, I think, to attend something like that. Because I've experienced a lot of comfort in, in reaching out and sharing my experience. And I didn't expect that. So what happened was I actually, I shared this on Reddit in the experiencer group. And I thought, oh God, here we go. I'm going to get all these like DMs, like you're crazy. Stop taking drugs. And I don't really take anything anymore. <laughs> I used to, you know, back actually when I was not experiencing anything in my early twenties in college, that's when I was experimenting the most with drugs. And it was when I stopped doing drugs <laughs> that I experienced more. So it was, it was pleasant. And just the, the similarities and experiences, that was what really blew me away. The little things like the, the clicking and the, the sense of humor and the way that they communicate and, 
you know, the, the physical similarities, it just really blew me away. So I often wonder, you know, post-COVID, what it would look like to put these people in a room together. What other similarities could we come up with? I mean, I'm sure it would be astounding. Yeah, and if you don't mind, let me plumb your mind on this a bit. As an experiencer of Mantis Contact, when you imagine a convocation like this, a Mantis Summit, what would be important to you to ensure its success, the right vibe, right setting, right intention? What details would be critical? I would I would also want to know more about other anomalous experiences that these people have had. I think that when we share these Mantis experiences, we just start with that. And then when other people chime in and discuss the similarities it's so shocking that it's easy to be wrapped up in that first initial experience but i would want to expound upon that and i would want to know if there are any similarities between myself and what i experienced with people around me almost i kind of call it almost like being a conduit to share psychic experiences with with people who haven't had experiences so i would just i I would i would want to know about their experiences post mantis and how it has affected their psychic abilities and their their creativity and how it's affected meditation spirituality what occult practices they've delved into everything i would probably be like the most annoying (laughs) host ever with a million questions but that's the wonderful thing about experiencers is that um, we can share these experiences in a comfortable environment and i think that after a few minutes we all experience that relief of oh my gosh, these people are not here to judge me. I can share freely. And there, there's almost like an instant camaraderie. So it could almost be a free-for-all, honestly. I would be comfortable with that as well. How long? How many people? I have no idea. I mean, I think that, who knows, maybe three days would be sufficient. I would even venture to say like a week. <laughs> maybe we could get it done in, all, in one day. I have no idea. Um, the interesting, I'm, I'm mostly interested in what you mentioned. People are reaching out to you with more mantis experiences. Did these happen recently? Did these happen years ago? When did they occur? I mean, I, I think that, that that's interesting. I'm kind of into the whole astrology aspect of this. So there was this conjunction of Pluto and Neptune and Taurus in like 578 BCE or something like that. That was known as the Axial Age, I believe. And then like all these people came about, they were teachers and leaders like Buddha, Confucius, early philosophers, Pythagoras. So that that's interesting. So when we think about these conjunctions, there was another one that happened in the 1890s when Pluto and Neptune conjoined for the first time. I think it was like the first time in almost half a millennium, there were all these airship sightings. 
So that kind of makes me wonder what is happening or what's going to happen in the the future. So I think it's 2025 Uranus is going to enter into Gemini or something like that. Um, And historically, 1776, I mean, that was pretty historic, the Declaration of Independence. Um, It coincided also with the American Civil War, World War II. So so what's going on here? Is there some kind of similarity? Who knows? I mean, Uranus, when you think about it, it, it rules Aquarius. And there are, there's a lot of debate about when are we going to enter the age of Aquarius. But the key words for Uranus are like inventions, originality, um, science, brilliance, changes of events, electricity, rebellion. So that's an interesting one. Freedom, independence. What does this all mean in the grand scheme of things? Is there some kind of pattern associated with this? I'm still kind of a novice to astrology, but it, it kind of makes me wonder if there's some kind of correlation going on here. I'm so uneducated on the astrological side. The longer term patterning I'm typically observing are the yugas, for instance, how that overlays with earlier epochs, long history, deep cycles. It would be fun to tease forth new layers around these associations and and deep cycles. On one hand, the primeval, prehistorical aspects of human non-human dynamics. On the other, this pressing urgency in messaging around the clock running out, climate collapse, the great change, speaking broadly. There's a geological frame, and there is also the crisis of a possibly uninhabitable world. How do you set these distinct concerns? How do you reconcile them as an experiencer? So... Sometimes I kind of wonder why are all these things happening? Is it to to test us? Is it to distract us? Is COVID a distraction? I don't I don't know. This this is all just speculation, and all of this really depends on what happens to us as humanity. You know, it's hard to think about UFOs when we're in the middle of a pandemic or we're dealing with you know, racism, you know, I'm from the South. This is like an in-your-face thing that I see every day when I go back to Louisiana. And, you know, I'm originally from the Bible Belt and there are Confederate flags all over the place. Like, how can you even begin to digest this information that there's something else out there when we have such heavy issues to deal with here on Earth? You know, it's hard to care about spirituality if we have to work our asses off to put food on the table. So if we can't find solutions to those things, it's going to be hard to expand. And like I said, I wonder sometimes if those things are intentionally placed in our environment to distract us, to keep us from expanding our minds so that we can't think about this. We're almost like stuck in what I was referring to as that dull, round way of, of life. You know, just get up and produce and live your life and go to sleep and get up and do it the, the next morning. We have to kind of deal with our primal needs. So this kind of makes this, this diff- difficult for humanity as a whole. 
but sometimes I wonder if, if that is the starting place, like we need to learn how to meditate and how to immerse ourselves in spirituality first before we can deal with earthly issues. I don't really know what the solution is, but I think a lot of people see meditation as a waste of time. It isn't. Meditation can make you more productive and more creative. So I guess if I, I don't know if this really answers your question, but I would say that that is a, an excellent springboard for solving the world's problems. It's amazing what will come to you in meditation. Um, so start with that, even if it does nothing but relax you. <laughs> We can all do better with a clear head and a little bit more relaxed state. So I don't really know how to answer that. It's it's a difficult question and you know, I kind of grapple with it every day. It's it's a heavy question for sure. Do your psychic capacities ever intersect with these questions when a precognitive sentiment comes in? Does it that ever expand to a planetary scale? And would you want it to? It does. And I think probably if you ask other experiencers, they all share this in, in, common, in common. It's almost like this nebulous but profound sense of anticipation that something is coming. <laughs> the funny thing is, we don't know exactly what it is. And it's like I said earlier, you have to perform these ridiculous mental gymnastics to even begin to wrap your brain around it, though. But the one thing that we do have in common, though, is the internet, because, I mean, it seems as though we all have this same sense of trying to convey something that is so enigmatic. We don't really know what it is, but just that it is coming. I'm, I'm optimistic, though. I think that we're right on the precipice of something changing for the better. Now, it's really hard to put into words what that is. Maybe it's a revolt against AI. You know, maybe it's a solution to, to climate change. Maybe it is something, a unifying event that is all going to bring us together and then we'll accept that we're all one, all one human race, and that some of these things are asinine. I don't really know what it is. I would love the answer, but it's, you know, it's not going to come immediately but I think that it is coming. What about the question as to whether the non-human presence would intervene in the most extreme scenarios, nuclear annihilation and other existential threats? Is there a non-interventionist code tying their hands? They seem intimately braided with every meaningful aspect of our lives from procreation to technology, so... I mean, they sure as hell intervened with me. <laughs> I mean, um, so, I mean, I guess it depends on your, your perspective. Going back to the whole pet analogy, I mean, do we think it is an intervening thing to microchip our pets? I mean, our pets would probably say, hell yeah, what the hell did you do to me? But, you know, we would say, well, it's a measure to protect you. So going back to this whole alien intelligence book that, that I was talking about, it's a really interesting 
read because what is intelligence you know it depends on your your perspective of this whole thing i mean maybe there is some kind of interference and something that has intervened with our biology that would make sense to me i mean i'm a reader a lot of your listeners are readers go back through biblical interpretations and it's kind of right there in your face staring at you. But who knows? These are all stories that have been passed down through generations and generations. It's kind of like if I pick up the phone and tell you a story, you're not going to convey it to the next person you tell it to word for word. There's going to be a lot of paraphrasing. So who knows? I I try not to really worry about that too much. I think that if I found out either way, it would not be terribly jarring to me. What I I think I would worry about most of all is reactions from other people who are not open. I mean, is it going to, my biggest worry is is that it is going to result in some kind of war, planetary war or war between beings or between us or, you know, is it going to have some kind of horrible negative effect? I hope not. I hope that whatever we find out is going to have a profound positive impact on the human race. What about your art, your work? Tell us about your life as an experiencer and how that infuses or orients your artistry. So I experience, I kind of explore themes of fear, pleasure and pain, life and death, you know, that's a strange duality if you think about it. And I think that exists in and of itself to spur us into this creative mode. So survival, you know, it mattered at some point. You had to fear things like cheetahs chasing your ass and you experienced pleasure to procreate, but we've evolve beyond that. So that's interesting. So now we fear and we take pleasure in almost ridiculous things. (laughs) I know I do. I try to catch myself in this all the time, like worrying about what someone thinks about us or taking some kind of odd, almost kinky pleasure in cataloging books into the numerical Uh, sequence so that we can, you know, better help people to find them in a library or putting some kind of obscure numbers into Excel spreadsheets in order to receive some minuscule reward in the the form of income tax returns. (laughs) I know a a lot of people who spend just an insane amount of time uh, playing around with Excel spreadsheets, you know, but it's almost like a kinky pleasure in that. So I explore themes of fear and love quite a bit. You know, sex and fear, those are the two of the strongest and most primal emotions we experience. But beyond that, that's where creativity can take place. So you fear things that you don't know and you derive pleasure Eroticism is kind of the way humans experience sexuality is almost the self-sufficient mental activity. So we often think of it as this recreational thing rather than procreational at this point. So that's where creativity can spring from eroticism. It, it, that can be a medium of human creativity. You hear about this all the time. It starts off as this primal biological base, but in so many animals, it becomes very nuanced and complex. So you might even say that 
we have this unique cognitive competence in us humans due to the transformation of biological sexuality into eroticism and then creativity. So in the animal kingdom, sex contributes to the welfare of the horde, while in human society, eroticism is so much more. It contributes to this individual self-recognition and paves the way to almost this moral awareness. And that's where things fit for me. And there's also this like kinky thrill that we get in fear, you know, and that's a, a big thing that I explore in my work, you know, and I try to counter myself quite a bit when it comes to things that I fear. And I'll divulge this. I've been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. So this is something that I think about quite a bit in my day-to-day -day life. Why are you worrying about this? <laughs> How is this going to help you survive? And it's interesting because we get kind of a, a certain kinky thrill in something like roller coasters or horror movies. We fear things that we don't understand and what we deem as the other, when really those things that we fear, it could really be something like Ludo from The Labyrinth, the movie with David Bowie, <laughs> where he appears terrifying at first, but he's actually a friendly monster. These things we have to we have to explore them with a creative mind to deconstruct them, I think. And there's a lot of pleasure in that for me. And there are perhaps aspects of our shadow selves in all of this as well, because there's, you know, this direct entanglement through love or emotions or even fear. So I love to play with these themes in my work. It's interesting to note the tandem tendrils here, how the anomalous relies upon or favors the rift, disruption of convention, stasis, the kinship with creativity and eroticism. They fold together quite magnificently. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun to deconstruct it, especially playing with fear and, you know, what exactly is a monster? It's really what we, we deem as the other, just something that we're unfamiliar with. But exploring those things and becoming familiar with them, I mean, I, I always like to go back to the analogy of Ludo from the movie Labyrinth and Sarah. When Sarah kind of gets to know Ludo, he becomes kind of a friendly creature. So <clears throat> coming from the generalized anxiety standpoint, I love to try to confront things that freak me out. <laughs> but turn them into a big cuddly creature. That is the age-old alchemical transmutation of properties. It's notable how much generalized anxiety riddles the experiencer community. I was on tour for 20 years, did over a, a thousand shows, and thought I was invincible, indestructible, and yet contact with non-human entities set loose an anxiety cascade that made me acutely aware of how ephemeral and frail my supposed resilience actually was when confronted with another order of reality. But then to find new strength, new sovereignty through new practices, slowly learning what real resilience is anchored in a more capable we. I do find an essential element in that strength is the artist's innate inclination to go toward shadow. That integrative impulse those in the primordial lineage go toward that shadow why because the transmutation of fear anxiety 
and otherness leads to freedom, sovereignty, real resilience, that point of all places. Yes, yes, exactly. And there's a lot of magic in this as well. I mean, magic is really just a ritual to produce a reality shift. So magic is all about personal evolution to find a, a purpose in your life. And for a lot of people, that's the creative primordial lineage. People have all this stuff. You know, we have Twitter and TikTok and all that crap, but most people don't really know what they're supposed to do, how they find fulfillment. And magic is really a way to personal fulfillment. Stepping into that shadow, exploring that side of ourselves, a way to explore yourself. Magic just isn't really in cards or tarot cards or ruins. It's within us. Those are just tools to psychologically solidify things in our minds since we're such visual, tactile creatures. But you can perform magic rituals by creating art. It's really just the same thing in my mind. I completely occur. No. <laughs> no. Concur. I, compl- <laughs> I completely occur is a pretty funny slip, actually. I appreciate that you speak to magic and that we're landing on that here at the end. Real art is real magic, and in asking ourselves what helps, what has real efficacy in these puzzles, that augments our agency, strengthens sovereignty, and while doing so also deepens our relationship with the others, be they local, remote, anthropic, fey, interdimensional, including the plural nature of an individual human. Ritual, creativity, relationship, these have reliably produced positive change and healing for me, at least. If someone had said to me 10 years ago, you're going to work with the goddesses, (laughs) Psyche, Sekhmet, and the Morrigan, I would have laughed right off of my Zen cushion and... Yet that is precisely what transformed my condition. And I say that in gratitude, grateful to have my life, and I owe it to that circle, that much wiser we. Yes, me too. I mean, it's been life-changing for me to be able to indulge in this, this whole creative lineage. And like I said, I do think that it helps us unite with them, whatever them is. For more information on Claire Castleberry, check the show notes. <sighs> one time I was standing at a bus stop, and it's just me and this one other guy, and we start making small talk, of course. And it comes around to eventually I ask him, what do you do for a living? And he said, I'm a rocket scientist. (laughs) And my first thought was, must not be a very good one. Because what kind of rocket scientist stands around a bus stop waiting for a bus, right? But I didn't say that. I afforded him the respect that I imagine rocket scientists deserve. But as a struggling artist, I will admit, I felt envy because that is such a great card to have in your back pocket. What an amazing card to play. This guy, all day, whatever he does at work, he can say, this is rocket science, okay? It's really hard, back off. But rocket science, if you think about it, is a broader umbrella than we might initially 
consider, you know, it just means you engineer airborne conveyance. So if you make intercontinental ballistic missiles, you're a rocket scientist. But also, if you assemble bottle rockets in China, you're a rocket scientist. It says rocket right on the package of those fireworks, right? But I'll bet the Chinese rocket scientist probably has a modicum of humility about his craft. He probably doesn't announce his vocation with such pomposity at every bus stop in Beijing, right? It's an artisan of an ancient craft. It's not about the celebrity like it is with the other one. So eventually, it came back around and felt obligated to ask me, you know, what do you do for a living? And I could not help myself. I said, I'm a rocket artist. I engineer metaphorical thrust, which conveys meaning through intersubjective atmospheres. And he did not appreciate the retort. He, he bridled somewhat. And he said, there's no such thing. Very funny. And I said, there, there wasn't. I'm actually the first rocket artist. I'm inventing a new genre, a new medium all day at work every day. I'm like, this is rocket art, okay? It's really subjective. Back off. But if you think about it, that's what it is to be an innovator. That's what it is to do something for the first time. It's a thankless job, and in a way, you're putting the rest of the planet in a very awkward position. Every time something totally new occurs, it makes the rest of everyone feel uncomfortable. It's kind of like we're all playing intersubjective twister, and everyone's like, I got a foot on orange, and someone's like, I got a hand on blue, and then you start painting new dots outside that plastic sheet that came with the game. And some people stretch their limbs and strengthen them, but some pull a groin, some dislocate a shoulder, and they resent that. I like to think about the first woman who created a word, the first signifier in human history. What an innovation, what an incredible novelty to introduce to our species, but how incredibly dangerous to be the first verbal person in a pre-verbal species. In fact, it's fucking suicide. If you think about it, it ensured an ugly death for her. <clears throat> I like to imagine she and her tribe were on the plains of the Serengeti. They haven't had water in days. They're scratching at the dirt. Her back is aching. She stands up and she sees a glint of liquid in the distance. And inspiration strikes her frontal cortex. And never before, but now for the first time, she says, Wawa! Wawa! First word. The tribe stops. Everyone looks at her. It's a sound they do not recognize. Wawa! She says. They chase her. She starts running. A throng of pre-verbal Cretans running behind her with sticks and clubs. She heads toward that liquid. Wawa! She's trying to tell them. She reaches the water and jumps in and splashes, showing them Wawa! And they circle around her and close in, and they drown her. They push her under the water and wait until the life drains from her body. And finally the tribe can relax. And when they do, they notice they're standing in Wawa. And one says Wawa, and another says Wawa. And the next morning, they're bathing 
They're drinking it. They've got a rope swing made out of vines, and they've got the word Wawa. Within a few generations, that tribe has language, full linguistic capability, and they love to talk about it. They love to talk shit and say, we're the tribe that invented language. We did it. We invented words. No one remembers her because she didn't have a name, because there were no names, because there were no words, until she invented them, and it killed her. That's being the first. It's a thankless job. <laughs> Think about the first painter. First painter in history. At some point, there's a guy in a cave with a torch, and he's got vegetable dye in his palm, and some saliva stirring in his mandible. He mixes the two together. Pow! A flash of inspiration. He feels compelled to depict an image from his mind's eye. He moves in on it, beautiful, elegant, flourishes with his fingers on the cave wall, and he finishes and pulls back, and it's a bison. Everyone knows it's a bison because he fucking nailed it. And then his dad walks over and leans in real close, and then his dad tries to bite that bison on the cave wall, chips his tooth. And the son says, Dad, no, this is a different, it's, it's a bison, but his dad's like, just jams a spear into that bison, spear breaks. His dad's like, Ugh. kid's like, Dad, it's a bison, but it's not a bison, it's like a new category. His dad just walks away, drool, tripping from his bottom lip. Every day, those other members of the community, bison hunters, they have to walk by his painting. And as they do, and just say, thanks for ruining our cave wall, asshole. <laughs> right? No one can eat your bison. Do you know the pain you make us feel? Looking, that's your pain maker, your painter. First bison, no thank you. But that's the job, that's the thankless job. Think about the guy who made the first contact lenses, right? He's at a party, he just says, I can restore your vision instantaneously. Just let me put this piece of cut glass on the surface of your eyeball. That's the last party he ever went to. It's a thankless job. But you can't let it stop you if that's your destiny, if that's your calling to be the first. Like me, I'm gonna be the first rocket artist. And one day my art rockets will detonate all over the major population centers of the world. And the landscape will be covered with glitter. And the smell of white lilacs will perfume the air. And at ground zero, people will just relax and lie down and cuddle. And that night, there'll be a slumber party. We will all lucid dream. We'll go anywhere we want in the cosmos instantaneously. By what means? By what me metaphorical thrust? Delusional propulsion. <laughs> Rocket artistry, right? So I better get back to work because I'm gonna be the first rocket artist.
Hello, friends. Stuart here. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider becoming a patron. What happens with your money, you wonder? I take your donations and I go to the grocery store and I buy food for my daughters. They eat it because people have to eat to live, even some artists. So just go to stuartdavis.com, click on the Patreon tab, and thank you so much for your support. Everything